This is Gareth Southgate, and this is the Three Lions Podcast. And welcome to the Three Lions podcast. My name is Russell Osborne, and this is an independent England football supporters podcast. Well, here we are in February, still none the wiser when we'll be able to watch football in a stadium in England, still none the wiser of how we can watch this summer's European Championships, be it in the grounds, in the pubs, or will it be in the comfort of our own front rooms? Now, I hope you're keeping well. Perhaps some of you are now in a position where you've had a vaccine. Maybe both of them. My wife has had her first one recently, simply because of her occupation. She was given it at Watford's Vicarage Road. And there she was sending me photos, looking down on the pitch. Felt quite jealous that she'd been into a ground more recently than I had. Wanted to ask her what it smelt like. What it felt like walking up to the ground. Maybe if she could pick me up a (laughs) programme. No doubt we'll find out soon the situation with the Euros. Although it appears UEFA have again reviewed their position on it all. With the deadline for returning tickets now passed, cynically, I thought, they announced this review a day after that deadline. We were waiting for a decision in early March as to what they were thinking. And that now seems to have been put back until April. Now, in this statement, they have said UEFA repeated its commitment to holding the euro across the 12 cities, according to the timetable that has already been published. All parties recognise the need for flexibility around decisions to be made on the arrangements for the tournament. In order to reflect the different challenges and circumstances that cities find themselves in. As a result of that and the fast-changing nature of the situation around the pandemic, the deadline for the submission of plans to accommodate fans inside the stadiums has been moved to early April. Alexander Seferin, the UEFA president, said, I am optimistic that things are highly likely to be very different with regard to the virus as we move closer to the tournament. And it's important that we give the host cities and governments as much time as we can to formulate an accurate picture of what will be possible come June and July. Fans are such a big part of what makes football special, and that is true of the Euro, as much as it is of any game. We must allow ourselves the maximum space to allow their return to the stadiums. I was reading the Times article by Martin Ziegler on the 29th of January and he writes of a ban of travelling fans for the group games at the tournament, which I guess means Scotland fans as well, uh, coming to Wembley. It doesn't appear to be a loophole for them, which is a shame, as we all know what the Scots can bring in terms of atmosphere. He also said that there's the possibility of a very small amount being able to travel to the semi-finals and final which at this point in time, they're still scheduled to be at Wembley. However, if you are a lucky supporter of a team in either the semi or the final, you'll be flown into London on charter flights, taken straight to the stadium, then back to the airport directly after the match, with minimal contact with the local population. (laughs) Which to me, 
Sounds horrendous. Imagine that, just being shuttled straight into the ground. No chance, no opportunity to go and see London in this situation. No chance for a beer away from Wembley. Still, that is the state we're in at the moment. And apparently sources told the Times that the Football Association's plan for Wembley is for the venue to be 30 to 35% full based on one metre social distancing. And so I guess that extended time frame of April gives UEFA more of a chance to see how things pan out. Let's not forget, this isn't just us and our vaccine programme. This is the whole of Europe and how they are faring too. It also gives UEFA more time to speak with the respective governments and the like. And that's not all. On the same day, the Daily Mail and Kieran Lynch have said that UEFA... Well, they're also considering refunding all tickets for the competition and restarting the buying process once venue capacities are announced. <laughs> more I hear about this tournament, the more I'm starting to think, just sack it all off, be done with it. So many rumours, connotations, possibilities. Must be a logistical nightmare. Knock it on the head. Although UEFA have obviously invested so much into it now. And I know that is a highly unlikely situation, what with games being played behind closed doors throughout Europe in domestic leagues. But on another note, did you see the Copa Libertadores final? A South American club competition. They managed to find space for 5,000 fans inside the Maracanã in Rio. My immediate thought, though, when I did see it, was Brazil... And coronavirus, haven't they got quite high statistics? Anyway, since that last episode, UEFA have also been busy drawing balls out of a bag. The 2023 Under-21 European qualifying draw has been made, and there are some familiar names in there. AD Bouvroy's boys will face the Czech Republic, Slovenia, Albania, Kosovo and Andorra in Group G. Those last three nations, Albania, Kosovo and Andorra, were opponents in the most recent UEFA campaign for the under-21s. Now these fixtures will start in September this year and the young Lions are still to compete in the finals for this year. These begin in March against Switzerland, Portugal and Croatia, all to be played in Slovenia. And if they negotiate those, then the knockout finals are being played in May and June. Now, if they are successful in qualifying for those 2023 finals, the one where the draw has just been made, then they are due to be played in Georgia and Romania. Now, the last podcast, I spoke with Mark Chapman, curator of the website englandsamateurs.com. Great reception to it. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you very much for all your feedback. Uh, if you've still not heard it, it is still available to listen to at your usual podcast provider or threelionspodcast.com. And it was the start of a couple of episodes that looked back on some England history. And it's something that I've always wanted to achieve with these podcasts is have something that can be listened to at any point, timeless almost. Whilst the ones that can look at games can be very much that moment in time, I wanted some that could be listened to at any point. Much like the episode where I looked at the very first game uh, between England and Scotland. 
which was episode number 66, if you want to check it out. And this episode is another very much in the same vein, and hopefully the start of another little mini-series. So watch this space. My guest this week is Graham Morse, author of the book Sir Walter Winterbottom, the father of modern English football. Now, 16 years in charge, played 139, won 78, drew 33, lost 28. England managers with records like that don't come around often. And I'm talking about Sir Walter Winterbottom, England's first manager. And here to talk more about him is Graham Morse, author of the book, Sir Walter Winterbottom, the father of modern English football. Hello, Graham. Hello, Russell. Well, thank you very much for giving me the chance to talk about one of my favourite subjects, uh, Sir Walter Winterbottom, who was my father-in-law. Absolutely more than welcome. And and yes, your father-in-law, because uh, you married his daughter, Janet. Um, one of the things that actually sort of immediately struck me was you must have had an England manager who, who made a speech at your wedding. <laughs> yes, yes, he did. And I remember shaking hands with him on the uh, steps of the church afterwards. And all the press were there, of course, because he was still the England manager at the time I married Janet. And I'm kind of like nervous. And he said, you're not used to this, are you? (laughs) Which, of course, I wasn't. Another time he threw me was um, when I um, proposed uh, to Janet. She said, well, you know, yes, you know, I will marry you, but you have to ask my father. So I was a bit intimidated because he's the England manager, you know, the second most important man in the country after the prime minister. And um, she said, don't worry about it. I've got him on my little finger. It'd be just easy, just a formality. You come to dinner one night and uh, he'll, um, uh, you know, Anne and my mother and I will be there. So I thought, oh, that'd be fine then. Anyway, they duly left the room. And, um, you know, so I said I wanted to marry Janet. And instead of saying, oh, wonderful, isn't that good? He said, right, really. Um, so where are you going to live? I don't know. I hadn't thought of that. <laughs> <laughs> I just got caught up. I, I was so besotted about getting married and he was thinking about practical things. And um, anyway, he gave uh, he gave our wedding his blessing and uh, I, he became a very, very close friend of mine. Oh, wonderful. Wonderful. And and you've gone on now to to write this this excellent book, which um, I've I've read through the, the father of modern English football. So it's a wonderful book. And it came out uh, a few years ago now. So I'm maybe a little behind the uh, the times. But right at the very beginning, he he said he didn't really want to write his own biography. So did you decide to do this off your own back? Well, I always hope there'd be a biography because he is a part of English football history uh, that has not been recorded. And um, he never wanted, he had approached some publishers when he resigned from the FA, of course, in 1962. Um, But he didn't want to write it. He always said, oh, they want me to dig all the dirt on the FA. And I would never do that. Uh, He was a very loyal person. And then years later, I said, well, why don't you write it? You know, you write your story. And he, I think he was too modest. He felt that it would be trying to blow his own trumpet. And he wasn't that kind of person. Um, but what he did do, I said, well, why don't you just write some things down for your grandchildren? They'll, they won't know who you were and what you did and so on. So he did write 46 pages called My Life. 
Um, and so there's a lot of stuff in the book about his early life in particular, growing up uh, as a child in Manchester uh, and playing for Manchester United, that sort of stuff, um, which I did put in the book. So that was a, gave me a grounding for the book. And of course, when he died, really, it wasn't get written unless I wrote it. And now looking back, I, I was the right person to write it because I was so close to him. I knew him so well. I must have been over 100 England games with him. You know, after he left the FA, he was a vice president of Football Associate. Um, and I was with him so many games and, you know, as well as all the family things. And um, I think I now am the leading expert on Sir Walter Winterbottom. <laughs> well, yes, I mean, as I say, he he had 16 years in, in charge at uh, England. And and after his England time, he, he put in some very special things that are still in place now. And we'll talk about that as we go along. Um, but when he was appointed England manager after he'd played for, for Manchester United, he was only, he was really young. He was 34 years old and had never managed a team, let alone the England team, which I found fascinating. Yeah. Well, it is amazing. Um he was the first England team manager, the youngest and the longest serving, and those records would never be broken. <laughs> yeah, it's it's amazing. Of course, it wasn't the intention that he'd be the England manager. So Stanley Rouse had met him at Carnegie College um, when he was, Stanley Rouse went there to run a football coaching course, and he asked Walter to help him run the course, and he was really impressed. And then the war came along, and after the war, um, so Stanley had this vision of a national coaching scheme, but he was an administrator, not a football coach. Um, so he persuaded Walter to become director of coaching, to introduce a national coaching scheme. And he, Walter didn't initially take the job because the salary offer was lower than he was getting in the RAF and that he could get in teaching. So Stanley thought of solution. He said to the uh, FA Council, well, if we ask him to manage the, look out, manage the England team as well, it'll justify a bit of extra money we need to persuade him. So it was sort of an add-on to the main job of director of coaching. And of course, up to that point, one of the FA Council members simply took the England team to games. I mean, there wasn't such a thing as a manager then. So it was a first step to having a manager for the England team, and it kind of happened by accident. Oh, could you manage an England team as well as your main job? I see. And although and he did he, it for 16 years. Yes. And although he was manager, in the sense that we know the England manager now, Gareth Southgate, he will pick the team, he will select the players um, that he wants to to play under him. Back then it was it was almost well, is it how cricket is now where they have the selectors? So that they would select the players and and then Walter would then pick his 11 on the day. Well, it wasn't even as good as that, really. You're quite right. This was probably one of the biggest crosses that Walter had to bear, um, is that uh, there was a selection committee. And when it began, there were nine selectors, uh, and they would all have a vote. Well, who are we going to vote for for goalkeeper? And they'd all vote. And if there was a, a tie, and because they'd all vote for the, the goalkeeper in their team, yeah. uh, because they were all directors of you know, of top clubs. And then, you know, there was a tie, the chairman would have the casting vote and the team would be picked. Well, it's obviously a dreadful way to pick a team. And Walter couldn't 
change it. The FA was the FA and they were very powerful and he was just an employee. But what he did was he persuaded the selectors to watch teams other than their own team. And he said he doesn't play like that when he's at home or when he plays other games, you know. So why don't you go and watch him in some other games? Because uh, I want to know, you know, what you think about him. So he kind of got them on side and got them sort of to understand what he was looking for in players, you know, how to watch a game, what was important, what was he looking for. So he was stuck with the selection committee, but he had influence. But nevertheless, it was they that picked the team and not him. Until much later, uh, in somewhere, you know, the last few years, about 1960, eventually he got the selection committee down to three, and he was one of the three. And then when finally, when Arthur Ramsey was appointed, he told the FA he won't take the job unless he can pick the team. And of course, that was the beginning of the big change. Which, if we were to sort of throw forward um, to when Sir Alf Ramsey took charge, Sir Walter had quite an influence on, on a lot of things that were put in place for England to win the World Cup in 1966, didn't he? Well, yes. He... Um, over a long period of time, over the whole 16 years, he really changed very much. He was a great innovator. Um, it wasn't until 1953 that the England team went on a tour, um, close-season tour. Up to then, they just played games in the season on a Wednesday. And so the players never got together at all. So this is the main problem, that the players were never together as a team. But in 1953, he took the England team to South America and he had them all together for four weeks playing against South American opposition, which they had hardly ever played before. So that was a a major start. The other thing was that um, when he began, players were picked because they were famous. They, you know, they'd they'd done very well uh, and it was almost reward for good service, which was no way to pick a team. And Walter wanted to have younger players to be introduced into the international scene. So at first he introduced a B team. So there was now a B team so that up and coming players could have experience of international football at the B team level. And then he introduced an under 23 team. He believed that it was important to bring youth through. And the under 23 idea was enormously successful and um, brought in players. Um, um, Bobby Robson, they came through the under-23 system. Johnny Haynes, of course. Johnny play, Johnny Haynes played for England schoolboys uh, and then England under-23 and the B team and then the, the, the first team. So these were all important changes that he made, um, sort of culminating in the fact that, as I said, that he brought the selection committee down to three, of which he was one. He also, in the earlier days, this this was a trying to get the players together was a problem because league clubs didn't want to release players, even for internationals. So any excuse that oh he got injured on Saturday, he can't play next Wednesday, and um, so he introduced the idea of what he called get-togethers, where the team would go to Lillishaw for two or three days in midweek and just practice as a team together. Um, that was new. That was revolutionary. And it got them to know each other and work out how they played together and so on. So there were all these were things that did lay the foundation for the um, 66 team. And of course, a lot of the players in the 66 team had been introduced by Walter. 
Bobby Moore, who played in Chile in 62. Armfield didn't play, but he was in the squad. Jimmy Greaves didn't play, but he was in the squad. Um, so, um, yes, I think it's true to say that he laid the foundations for success from a very old-fashioned stereotype England that he took over in 1946. There was one other thing that I read in the book, which I, I really like that he introduced, and and it's still there. It's still there today, although you'll probably see them wearing more tracksuits. But he introduced the uh, the wearing of a, a suit, which I think before before World Cups and, and major tournaments, we always see the England team decked out in a uh, in a new suit. Which uh, it's always it's nice to see where that came from. It was blazers and slacks, grey slacks and a blue blazer with the three um, lions on the, um, the, the badge on the pocket. And again, some of the players thought we're being treated like schoolboys to have to wear a uniform. But most of them thought, I'm proud to wear the blazer and proud to let people know I'm an England player. So even ideas like that were sort of, um, there were critics. He faced opposition and so many of the things he wanted to do. And like all people with new ideas, um, you know, they were criticised and resisted. And people said, you know, we like it the way it is. But there was a great deal of innovation on the coaching side. He introduced the badges system, which still carries on today. There was a preliminary certificate and then a preliminary certificate and badge for the advanced coaches. He introduced FA staff coaches that were, were taken on by the FA, people like Bill Nicholson, Don Howe, Ron Greenwood, Mark Madison, who carried out, went to their clubs and, and, and spread the gospel. But I think the other important thing to mention is FA, he was in charge of FA Publication Book. It was called Soccer Coaching, and it was in 1952. And when I spoke to Jimmy Armfield and wrote in this book, he said it's still the Bible. This is the Bible of coaching. Many books have come along in full colour, beautifully produced, but the principles are still the same. And, he, and then after that, he wrote several other soccer coaching books, very simple books with line drawings for players, but the principles were the same. There are 10 different ways to kick a football, for example. And he went through why each one is appropriate to different situations. Films, he introduced films so that films could be shown in schools and in clubs, films and matches and games. So books and films are a large part of the educational message he did. You know, there was a lot of innovation on the coaching side. Yeah, very much a, a pioneer, really. He was a pioneer, a man of visionary and a man ahead of his time. And and I think the press were a little sceptical of him to start with, weren't they? Well, yes, that's right. I think the critics, and particularly like Brian Glanville, criticised Water as being an academic, um, a, a teacher. He was a teacher. Um, and I think that it's true that he was an intellectual. And it was a two-edged sword. He needed to be an intellectual to create a national coaching scheme and to plot the path of development of English football. But players coming from working-class backgrounds and limited education sometimes found it difficult to uh, understand that. So he was criticised by the crest sometimes as being a sort of... Um, too much of a tactician, too much theory. But it was a charge he always denied. He absolutely believed in practical coaching um, and uh, playing with the ball, teaching ball skills and so on. And 
as England manager, he's the only one to have taken the national team to four World Cups. And that first World Cup, 1950s, there was a game within that that many will, will maybe be aware of, was the loss to America. How, how did he yeah. deal with that? Well, he always said, they're going to put that on my gravestone. It was, it was shocking. Um, it was one of those unbelievable results. But as he said afterwards, these things happen in football. You know, Arsenal can get beaten by Swindon. Um, you know, the cup shocks happen and, and they're unbelievable. The game itself um, was held in a ramshackle stadium, which Jimmy Armfield described as just about up to conference standards. <laughs> the changing rooms were so poor that Walter had them change at the hotel and then go in the coach already changed. The crowd was obviously extremely partisan, all supporting uh, America and not you know, the underdogs and not England. Um, and England did everything but score, score. I think Walter said afterwards someone had kept a record and they hit the post or the crossbar 11 times. They also had a goal disallowed. It was just, and the, the American goal was a fluky um, deflection. It was just one of those games when you knew you were never going to score. But it was, um, you know, it was, it was very hard to take for the players and um, uh, for Walter. I think the thing about that World Cup as well, is that, that, that that's worth mentioning is that England it, it reflected that England still felt they were the best team in the world you know we'd gone through the early part of the 20th century we invented the game we taught at these other countries we just thought we were the best in the world and gradually the world caught up with us and we hadn't realized it and uh, players went there thinking they're best in the world it was the first time the FA had even bothered to enter a World Cup competition the first one was in 1938 so they deigned to enter uh, and thought they would just go and show the world how to play football, but everything had changed. They thought it was so unimportant that Manchester United were on a um, uh, a tour overseas, and they didn't allow any of their players to come. So it, it, it just it was completely underestimated by the FA the importance and the fact that we weren't the best in the world. So in many ways, it was um it was a shock to the system which was needed. And there were further games, um, and it sounds like I'm talking about the, the defeats here, but some of the the defeats that England yes. encountered underwater in that period of time were, were quite a learning curve because there was the famous two games against Hungary that Walter was in charge of. But I, I think it's safe to say that, that he learned quite a lot from those. Well, I'm glad you've mentioned the Hungary game. It was a watershed in English football because it was played at home, it was at Wembley, and it was the first time England had ever lost to a foreign team at Wembley. And um, it was a very important game because up until 1953, club directors, managers, players did still believe that we were the best in the world. We'd never lost at home. The British, we still had the British Empire then. You know, the, 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 the globe was coloured pink all over the place. And when Hungary came and beat us, they were a wonderful team. They played 25 games uh, without being beaten. And uh, we still, the press the day before the game, still believed that England would beat them. We'll show them how football's played. We'll, our hard tackling, we'll, we'll take them down a peg or two. Walter knew that wouldn't be the case. Uh, and, of course, they ran rings around England. Hidaguti, Pushkas, 
who are now obviously world famous names, um, they played a, t- a style of football that England had never seen before. And what's good is that it, it was on television as well. TV had come out. People at home saw it. The press saw it. And everyone realised that this was a different type of football. And the press the day before had said England win easily, said we've just seen some amazing football that has just blown our minds away. What was different was that England had always played the WM formation um, with two full-backs, three half-backs, and um, the centre-half-back playing as a, a three, pivoting around the centre-half. And it was a number game, as Ron Greenwood said, you know, number three, mark number 11. And, you know, that you, you just mark by numbers. Well, to do that, Hungary didn't play like that. You know, they, they all went back in defence. They all came forward and attacked. Uh, they played the deep line centre forward. You know, England didn't know who to mark. Uh, they never played anything like it. And although it was, um, as you say, a stunning defeat to lose at home for the first time, it's actually the best thing that could have happened to Walter because now everyone accepted that England was not the best team in the world. And it meant he could begin to make the changes that he knew he had to make to try and bring England up to that level. Yes. And it helped him. Coaching is obviously the thing that he should be most famous for. He introduced the uh, national coaching scheme. He got famous players to become coaches and go back to their clubs and coach. And now after Hungary, instead of being outsiders uh, and being um, criticised, it was accepted. Coaching became accepted and it really changed everything. So all these methods were were put into place by him we went to the the 54 world cup and then we uh we looked good for the 1958 world cup which was in sweden and i think everything was falling into place for him and until unfortunately the munich air disaster happened and and yes the munich air disaster was was a was tragic tragic of course for everybody in manchester for manchester united the whole of manchester uh, but there were four of the England team that died that day. So the spine of the team was ripped apart three months before the World Cup. And it was it was very hard to recover. They didn't do badly. Um, they drew with Russia in the first game. Brazil, who won the tournament, had Pele. Uh, they drew 0-0 with Brazil, which was a terrific achievement. But then they only drew with Austria. So they had to have a playoff game against Russia, which they lost 1-0. So it, it wasn't a total disaster. But I think a lot of the players thought that if it wasn't for the Munich disaster, they could have got to that final and played Brazil. Yeah. And, and Brazil, unfortunately, were in our way uh, in Walter's last World Cup in 1962 when we, we, we lost to Brazil there to, to come home. Yeah. In Walter's day, Brazil was his nemesis. And now, of course, in your generation, Germany is our nemesis. We're always playing the Germans and losing on penalties. Um, but it was Brazil in Walter's time. And Brazil were the sort of leaders in world football through the late 50s and 60s. Yes, and in Chile, again, Walter thought he had a world-beating side. And uh, players like Jimmy Armfield and Jimmy Greaves really believed they could win the World Cup. But again, um, Walter never had good luck. He lost key players before he went to Chile. There was um, 
the players he lost before, he, he, they had a terrific run in the 1961 season, 1961 to 62. Uh, they, 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 they won everything. They, they'd scored loads of goals, including a 9-3 victory over Scotland. But at the end of that period, they lost players. Bobby Smith was injured. Jimmy Greaves and Jerry Hitchens went to Italy and they weren't allowed to come back and play for England. And the team became disrupted. Jimmy Greaves and Jerry Hitchin did come back to go to Chile for the World Cup. Um, but three key players were out through injury just before they left to go to, uh, to Chile. Um, Bobby Robson, who played in midfield with Johnny Haynes. Peter Swan, who was a rock at centre-half. And Bobby Smith, who was centre-forward and was a terrific foil for Jimmy, Jimmy Greaves. Or, you know, Jimmy Greaves said many of his goals came because Bobby Smith fed him the ball. So he lost three key players to that as well. And um, so they went through to the quarterfinals and met, guess who? Brazil. And it was a terrific game, apparently. It was one all at half time. And the English press was saying, we can beat them. We can do this. We can go through to the semi final. And then a player called Garincha had a wonderful game, scored two glorious goals. And I think, you know, games, Walter always believed that. Games are won not by tactics, but by brilliant world-class players. You know, Pelly wasn't playing in that game. Garincha was. Garincha was world-class. And Jimmy Greaves on his day, Jimmy Greaves had a bad World Cup uh, there. He didn't shine in that game. He missed some goals. And games turn on these things. So um, it was a huge disappointment. And certainly when Walter retired and asked about regrets, he said, yes, I, I failed to win a World Cup and I regret that very deeply. Uh, he's, he's not the only one that has, has failed to win a World Cup. There's been plenty of others. I'm glad you mentioned Bobby yeah. Robson because he, he was one who came very close and alongside um, him as well as Ron Greenwood mm. as well, former England managers, they, they wouldn't have looked into the coaching side of things if it hadn't have been for Walter, would they? No, that's absolutely right. They were both disciples of Walter and uh, bought into his whole series of coaching. They took his coaching badges when they were players and they went back to their clubs and uh, followed the, the messages that they learned from Walter. And uh, Walter tells the story with Bobby Robson, how he said to him and Don Howe, why don't you take all the coaching badges? Because Football's opening up now and clubs are beginning to be receptive to the idea of having coaches and having coaches as managers. You know, there could be a career there for you. And so that's what he did. And um, at Walter's funeral, Bobby Robson said, I, everything as an international footballer and an inter international manager to Walter. Um, so he inspired people. I suppose that's one of the key things you can say. He inspired people like Bobby Robson. When Bobby Robson became manager, he took Don Howe as his assistant manager, another disciple of Walter's. And of course, they beat Walter's World Cup record and they went to a semi-final and got so very, very close to winning, as we all know. Yeah, I think it was in at the back of the book where you mention Bobby Robson and his eulogy there. Did Walter, he would often write to Bobby after all the games just to give him those, that confidence he was still doing it whilst, uh, whilst Bobby was in charge. Yeah, I mean, Walter was a great manager of people. Um, he saw the good in people and he didn't look at the bad. Um, and he was always encouraging people. 
he did, um, not just Bobby Robson, but Bobby Robson mentioned it, um, after he had retired, um, he would still write and support the people he knew, like Bobby Robson. And I remember, you know, Bobby Robson saying that when he wrote to me, he didn't write to me when I won things. He didn't need to. He would write to me and say, you know, stick at it. Don't take any notice of the press. Don't pick their team. Pick your team. You know, it'll come right. You know, you've got what it takes. You can do it. So he encouraged people. He made people feel good. I remember once when I was still, before I was married to Janet, and um, we talked about football in the kitchen, and you know, I was going to watch him matches, and I think I was going to watch Arsenal against Birmingham. And he said, oh, will you have a look at this Birmingham player for me? And he mentioned the name of a player. And it made me feel so important. I mean, I shouldn't think he took any notice of me, but the fact he'd asked me to do it, I thought, that's amazing, you know. <laughs> um, so I like, very carefully and took notes and reported back to him. But, you know, he made people feel good and he encouraged them. And he once said, when you talk to people, don't talk to them, don't see them as what they are. See them as what they could be. And they can turn out to be what they could be. And he was that kind of person, always seeing how people could be better and encouraging them to be better. Sounds sounds great. But it was 1962 when, after the the World Cup, that he that he left the job. And it was, by all accounts, a bit of a surprise, was it? Well, it was. I think that um, it was a bit misunderstood by some of the press that he resigned because we hadn't won the World Cup in Chile. That was absolutely not true at all. He resigned because Sir Stanley Rouse, being the had to give up being the secretary of the Football Association, would be called chief executive now, um, because he became president of FIFA. And he'd always groomed Walter to take over his job as the top man at the FA. And Walter knew that. He was being groomed for that job. He'd also proved himself as an administrator. He'd written a 40-page document uh, two years before the World Cup in England, setting up all what had to be done in order to stage his tournament. And uh, he prepared that for Stanley Rouse. So he was an administrator as well as a football coach. Everyone thought he would get the job, but some of the FA councillors were very anti Sir Stanley Rouse. Sir Stanley Rouse was a strong and autocratic man who did run the FA. And I think FA councillors thought he had too much power. And so someone thought that Walter would also become a powerful person and that would overrule them. And then Sir Harold Thompson, he wasn't called Sir Harold then, uh, was the leader of this um, Oxbridge cabal of public school university FA councillors who didn't want Walter to get the job. Um, They wanted a, a yes man so that they could control things once again. And Harold Thompson had a stroke of luck uh, on the Sunday before the FA Council met on the Monday. All the papers came out in support of Walter, saying, look no further, this is your man. He's the man to lead football forward in the next generation. He took the copy of The Observer and other papers around. Are you going to let newspapers tell you who to choose? And, of course, he persuaded them to go for Dennis Follows. Uh, who was the FA treasurer as a part-time job. Walter was deeply, 
deeply hurt by that and knew he couldn't continue in the job when he had this resistance against him. Um, so he left and joined the Central Council of Physical Recreation uh, and later became director of the Sports Council and set off on a whole new career. But it was it was a bitter, bitter pill for him to swallow. He always believed that he could take England and the FA so much further if he'd got that top job. Yeah, no, it was reading the book. I thought this all of a sudden politics came into it quite a lot, didn't it? Yeah, well, of course, there's politics in everything and um, football's uh, no different. The FA was still very much then the old school. I mean, it's changed a lot in the last, in your lifetime. But it was still then, although Stanley Rouse was bringing about many changes, it was still the old school. It was public school, university, um, and the amateur side of the game. You know, the FA was steeped in amateurism. There was still a resentment about professionalism. So, you know, there was that strong political Oxbridge axis against people like Stanley and Walter, who were ordinary people that came from working class backgrounds. How do you think Walter would perceive the FA now and, and the England job and Gareth Southgate's job? How do you think he would look at it? Well, it's a really good question. I've often wondered and I wish I could have a sort of magic thing where, you know, I could sort of speak to him with a few yeah. minutes from out of nowhere. I think that he would be really impressed by the way the FA has changed. I, I think the things I was talking about, the amateurism has gone. It's a much more professional organisation. It embraced coaching. Trevor Booking had a lot to do with that, Sir Trevor Booking, which brings me on St George's Park. I think that David Sheepshanks, who is the chief executive of St George's Park, said at the time that it was a legacy to Walter. Um, a bus to Walter was unveiled in the Coaches Education Centre, and he said, this is Walter's legacy. He would have been so impressed with St George's Park. It's a magnificent home of coaching. It, it sort of um, embodies everything that Walter believed in. And I think that in terms of what you said about Gareth Southgate, I think that many of the obstacles that Walter had have been removed now. Um, we have these national breaks. He has much more time with the players. I think the only area where, and I think you know, the FA England team, England games are more important. Everyone treats them with a great deal more importance than they ever did before. The only similarity, I think, which is not so true now, but the number of English players that Southgate and Manchester Form had to choose from is very limited because of the introduction of foreign players. Oddly enough, although people won't believe it, in Walter's Day it was the same because we had a tremendous influx of Scottish, Irish and Welsh players. And Walter would say he'd go to a game, Arsenal against Aston Villa, and he said, I would only see five England players on the pitch out of 22. Right. So that problem was the same. Um, however, I think things have changed in the last two or three years and more young England players are forcing their way into teams like Manchester City. And um, I think Southgate now has a much better choice than many of the managers before him did as players, young players have benefited, I think, from the coaching regime playing from out from the back that um, Sir Trevor Brooking uh, championed. Yeah. One thing, and I know you, you did just touch on it um, a moment ago, was when 
Walter was appointed as the, the General Secretary of Central Council of Physical Recreation after he'd finished yeah. his time at England. That really has an effect on us, Joe Public, still to this day, because that really helped sort of introduce sports and leisure facilities that every town up and down the country has really got, where we as England supporters can can go and have a game of five-a-side and, and that sort of thing, which was introduced by Walter. Yeah, Russell, I think I'm really glad you've mentioned that because this, again, is something that most people are unaware of. The slogan of the Central Council of Physical Recreation was sport for all. And the whole idea was to get everyone involved in sport for all sorts of good reasons that you and I know. And uh, then that sort of merged with the uh, the sports council. And there can hardly be a town or a city in England that doesn't have a swimming pool or a sports centre. He must have opened hundreds of sports centres across the country and persuaded the government to put money into it. It was something, again, that he was very proud of. But yes, you know, every town in England will have had this revolution that took place about creating facilities for ordinary people, boys and girls, to go out and take part in every kind of sport. So, yeah, that was, um, it was a second career and uh, one which he was always very proud of. But at the end of the day, of course, his love was always with football. Yeah. And all these these good things he done, and and I think he was he's fully deserving of his his knighthood. How did he feel about that? Well, he first of all had an OBE for his services to football, and then a CBE, I think, for sport. And his knighthood was for his work with the Sports Council. He was very modest about it. He didn't like people to call him Sir. He still called me Walter, but I think he was pleased for his wife. Lady Anne Winterbottom, she had had a lot to put up with. When he was England team manager and running the uh, coaching courses, she kept a diary. He was away for six months of the year, away from home. And even when he was with the Sports Council, you know, he was away a great deal. So she had a lot to put up with. And he felt that um, he was very proud that she was able to be called herself Lady Winterbottom. And um, so he was pleased for that. I think he was, he never admitted it, but I think he was proud to have that honour and to have served his country. Um, but he would never have said that to anyone. No, it sounds sounds fully deserved. Graham, thank you very much for, for giving us a, a little insight. The book, as I say, is Sir Walter Winterbottom, The Father of Modern English Football. It's, it's available on various bookstores. And, and you are, you're still writing, aren't you? You've got a new book out. Yes, I have. Yes. Um, how good of you to mention that. Yes, I've decided to write fiction. This is the third book I've written. It's called Fatal Fix. It's um, it's a crime thriller based in the world of professional football. And um, the main character is an investigative journalist who's called to cover a story where a Premier League manager is found hanged at home. And uh, the police put it down as suicide. But the... Uh, the press, the investigative journalist who knows the guy very well doesn't buy that story. He investigates, finds out it was murder, and then has to find out who did it and why. So it's a story uncovering corruption in football. There's plenty of that about Interestingly, us. the idea for it actually came from the Welsh manager, Beresby. Okay. And um, 
he was found hanged at home. You may remember that, do you? Yeah. Yes, yes, yeah. unfortunately. Yes. He was found hanged in his home and uh, he had everything in his life and uh, no one could understand why he would commit suicide. And the coroner didn't record it as a suicide because he couldn't prove it was suicide. So he recorded it as an open verdict. And the press could never find anything else about it. And they were very respectful, by the way, of his privacy. And they didn't try and come up with any salacious stories, which they might have done. But nevertheless, it it left me wondering, sort of, in a fictitious world, if a manager was found hanged at home, why could that have happened? So, you know, I used my imagination and came up with this story that became Fatal Fix, which is available on Amazon. Oh, good stuff. And has it been received well? Yeah, very well. Um, I thought it might just be of interest to um, football fans because it is based in the world of football. Um, but um, I'd be surprised how many women over the age 50 who like crime stories have enjoyed it as well. You don't have to be a football fan to enjoy this book. It's gone down very well, very well received, terrific reviews. And uh, I've really enjoyed doing it, writing it. All the best with it. And well, I've I've really enjoyed speaking to yourself and and learning a little bit more um, about water and about yourself as well. So, So thank you very much for your time. Well, thank you for inviting me, Russell. It's been a great pleasure to talk to you and brings back many memories to me. I hope your followers enjoy it. No, I'm sure they Thank will. You. I'm sure they will. Huge thanks to Graham for his time there. Uh, we encountered a large time difference, some technical hitches. But we got there in the end. And I really enjoyed it. I learnt a lot. Not just from the conversation, but his book too. I can highly recommend it. I don't know about you, but I'm finding I'm reading quite a lot more at the moment. Now, Graham is on Twitter and you can find out more about his latest book. You can follow him at Graham Morse 5. G-R-A-H-A-M-M-O-R-S-E 5. I'll be back very soon with another episode where I catch up with an England fan. Stay subscribed for that. As always, you can find the show on all the usual social media channels, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Just search Three Lions Podcast. And it's also available on all the usual platforms. iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Music. Why not tell your friends? Or, if you've just come across it, why not search the back catalogue? Plenty there to keep you occupied. Or send you to sleep? No, seriously. Uh, Thank you very much for your continued support. So until the next time, please take care. Keep trying to stay positive. Numbers, well, they're coming down and vaccines are going up. So let's all do our best to try and keep it that way. Look after yourselves. Stay safe. Cheers. Cheers.